old-time radio memories for you. Radiothen.network brings you another old-time radio interview. Today, a conversation with actor E.G. Marshall. He was best known for his many television roles, but he was also known as the host of the radio drama series CBS Radio Mystery Theater between 1974 and 1982. Here is today's old-time radio interview with E.G. Marshall. This is the golden age of radio. I'm Dick Bertell, and tonight we'll take you on another audio excursion back to radio's formative years. You'll hear the programs that made the era golden and meet people who made those broadcasts a reality. Thank you and good evening. And with me once again, of course, is radio collector Ed Corcoran. Ed, our, uh, our guest tonight not only was active in radio, but perhaps could be considered one of the most active radio actors going today. You sure can, Dick. He's on the air seven days a week on uh, a very prestigious show. And um, I'm, I'm sure by that alone people know who we're talking about, uh, the very distinguished actor E.G. Marshall. All of us who are uh, radio buffs are excited about the new series. High Brown was our guest not too long ago here on the program when the CBS Mystery Theater was uh, in the formulative stages, so to speak, and now it's a reality. And uh, how does it feel to be behind a radio microphone again? Oh, I love it. Uh, they said, well, don't you have to re-gear and retool? I said, no, it's like swimming. You never forget how to do that. But whenever I mention to someone that uh, I'm going to be on the air uh, tonight at so-and-so time, they say, oh, good, I'll be sure and watch it. And I said, <laughs> or not watch it, it's radio. Yes, that's what I mean. I'm going to be sure and watch it. But the language has changed <laughs> for, for, uh, uh, for drama. We insist that we must watch it, whereas in the old days, I'm going to be sure and listen. We used to say that about television programs. I'll listen to that television program tomorrow yeah. night. It takes a while to, uh, to re-educate your vocabulary. Somebody told me, and I, I don't remember, Ed, maybe you can recall if this was uh, High Brown himself, but uh, a little boy not too long ago uh, who had never heard radio drama on the air was listening to, um, to something that was being broadcast, one of the old shows, and uh, his father stepped over to him and, and said, uh, why aren't you watching television? And he said, because I can't see it as well as I can see it here on radio. And he actually meant that he could see the, the, uh, the characters and the, and the settings much more clearly in his mind. And I've noticed my own youngsters, who range in age from 14 down to, uh, well, the ones who are listening anyway, down to six, uh, really can, without any uh, education on their part, and start listening to the radio, it's as though uh, it, they had grown up with it. Ewell Brenner uh, was a television director in the early live days, and he was telling me he took his son out to the beach, and uh, he had a radio, and he was listening to a football game. And his little son, Rocky, was crawling around, crawling around, and Ewell says, Rocky, what's the matter? What are you looking for? And he says, well, where's the picture? But he was brought up on television, so if he heard that electronic voice, he automatically expected to see the tube light up and you'd see some action. <laughs> well, at any rate, let's, let's get down to uh, the basics of the CBS Mystery Theater. When, for you, did it start? About six months ago, because I'd known high in the early days of radio, and uh, 
Sometimes I'd go in his office and we'd talk about why, why, why did it all stop? It was so wonderful. People loved it so. Why did it all stop? And then we'd give various reasons why television su- supplanted radio. And we'd say, well, why don't we just get together and do it? We'll find a station someplace and we'll do it. We'll get a script. We must have scripts there, high. So, yeah, we'll do it. But we could never get a station to provide the time for it because it was so strictly structured. And we'd reminisce about it and have a coffee clutch and say, well, someday, because they're not going to forget it forever. It'll have to come back, right? So gradually and finally it did come back, and now we're on the air every night in the week. You know, we've had so many um, of the actors on this program who have appeared over the years in in radio drama, Ed, that uh, when you listen to the program, it's like hearing old friends. Have you had this experience? Yes, in fact, every show I've heard, at least one of the actors has been a guest of ours at one time or another. So it's really, uh, it strikes us uh, very close to home when we hear that show because they're old friends. They're buddies of ours. Now, you're the narrator. You're the host on the program, E.G. Are you there for the, uh, for the recording session, or do you have separate takes? Well, in the old days, everyone had to be there at the same time, and when that little red hand got close to the top there, you were on the air and someone would point a finger at you. But now with uh, improved facilities and equipment and so forth, we can tape at separate times. You don't even have to be in the same state to do a show anymore. No, it's all put true. on tape and edited and cut and mixed and... Uh, so I only have to show up once a week, really, to do my part after the actors have done theirs. Have you ha- had the desire to, to drop in, though, and see what's going on? Well, they keep asking me, are you going to be in one? And I said, well, I don't know how I could be. How could I, as the host, be uh, a victim or a, a, a protagonist or antagonist? Why don't you have a good lawyer script for you sometime? You can get back to your old uh, first love. Yes, as the host, I can commit some crime and then be my own defense attorney. <laughs> In a moment, I I want to go back to the beginning of your radio career, E.G., but first, this message from our sponsor. Get growing, get growing. You can count the difference when you're growing. Cromwell Savings Bank of Cromwell. It's time to spring back into shape with a home improvement loan from Cromwell Savings Bank. Spring is here, and the green trees and warm weather aren't too far behind. Warm weather is an excellent time to remodel your home, and Cromwell Savings Bank has the greenbacks to finance your home improvement. You have the green light, so go ahead and repair the roof or revamp the rec room with a home improvement loan from your friends at Cromwell Savings Bank, Cromwell. Grow more with us. Cromwell Savings Bank of Cromwell Savings Bank, member of FDIC and equal housing lender, is located at Main and West Streets in Cromwell. Well, let's go back now to the days of Minneapolis-St. Paul, E.G. That's where it all began for you. Well, we used to have a program on every Saturday, and uh, it was sort of like come in and visit. And we'd get together some act or other, or we'd uh, do... I used to play the guitar, and... uh, We'd work up some songs, and some of these sketches, I remember some of the sketches now, I said, well, I don't think they'd make it on the air anywhere, even today. But uh, we'd do a five-minute sketch or a seven-minute sketch or do a little playlet, maybe some something longer. And it was exciting. As I say, well, the pioneering stage of anything is exciting, and uh, that exhilaration is uh, coming back again now that we're doing it once more. It was... Uh, you say, was it primitive then? Well, it was uh, the most developed at its time, radio was, and uh, it did a miraculous thing. We thought of it as a miracle then. We no longer think of radio as a miracle. 
Uh, we no longer think of television as a miracle. Now we don't even think it, television on the moon is a miracle. It's all there, and we're a little blasé about it. The fact is that you started out, though, as a as a singer, not an actor or no, an announcer. No, um, it, that came afterward. We used to do these sketches, and we said, well, what about if we do songs? Because I wanted to expand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a country and western singer, or one of the early ones? Or what was your style in those days? Well, they, they called it singing. Now they've got <laughs> categories for it. Your rock, or soft rock, or hard rock, or your folk, or country, or something like that. We were just singing the best we could. May I ask you a personal question? Were you paid for this? Oh, yes. You'd get $7. <laughs> you know, you, you did much better than some of the guests <laughs> that we've had on the program who worked for years for nothing or for a dollar a week. Yeah, or the exposure. That's right. what $7 could buy in 1930. <laughs> now, did you continue in radio? I know you were active, of course, throughout radio's history, but uh, what was your primary goal as a as a performer? It was the stage, and uh, when I moved to Chicago, and at that time there were three big stations in Chicago doing dramas around the clock. And uh, because I was on the stage and I couldn't be dependent on to show up uh, for a continuing series, I'd have to walk in and be a guest and make the $25 for the guest shot, and they would never could never depend. And you'd have to say, well, you'll sign up for 13 weeks with an option for 13 more and so forth. So I, I missed out in Chicago. And then when I went to New York, I, again, I was on the stage. And I would only be the casual guest dropping in. I never was a regular member of any series show. The big things w that I did were um, uh, Theater Guild on the Air and uh, Grand Central Station, Cavalcade of America, and uh, some of the other shows. I've even forgotten their names now. But there again, you had to say, well, we'll, we'll promise to pay you uh, for three out of five, okay? And maybe we'll use you more. And we said, well, I don't know, if, because if I'm going to go out on the road with uh, The Iceman Cometh, uh, what will happen then? They said, we'll get somebody else. It's just a shame that tape so had not been invented. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I said, well, I'm going to be uh, on the stage, then I'll give up all that easy money. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as, uh, as an irregular, if, if you want to put it that way, you, you would make uh, appearances from time to time on uh, some of the daily soap operas. If they would say it's a short-term, you're a short-term villain, or, yeah. you're, or you're a short-term lover on some of these shows, that you come and say, well, he'll work for about six weeks, we think. But many times, as we all know, that they'd be on six years, you know, they'd come and they'd become a permanent part of the family or the show. Yeah, Larry Haynes was telling us, I guess, on his show, what's the name of Dick, the TV show he does? Uh, he was on for Search about, for Tomorrow. Yeah, he went on for about a four-week stint, and he's been there 21 years, and it's happened in, in the radio the same way. The character caught on, and they wouldn't let yeah. him go after that. Of course, it's rather interesting to uh, to work with somebody like Larry Haynes, who uh, is a man, a middle-aged man, and who... Uh, can play any part on radio. He, he's completely limitless on radio because of the flexibility of his voice. And I don't always recognize it either. I heard a show the other night, and uh, there was a young man playing a, a young husband, and I said, who is that? Who is that? Larry Haynes. And then another time he was playing a, an older man, and I still he, he's so flexible and versatile, he can change his voice, and I, I can't hear it. I can't spot it. Hmm. Uh, well, of course, the, uh, the difference, I think, in radio is that... Uh, You've got the one, the one medium to work with, and that is sound. And if you're going to create a character, you're going to have to do it through the uh, the sound, the inflection, and the voice. You can't do it with uh, gestures and mannerisms. Makeup and costume is all you, well, you I, and that yes. 
Riggin. Jackson Beck is a great example because he plays villains, big husky He-Man, and we know, you know, he's relatively uh, he's a oh, five foot eight, uh, 155 pound individual. Martin Gable. Martin Gable. Many of the way. great romantic lovers of radio. Uh, <laughs> he's a very handsome, distinguished, intellectual gentleman, uh, but uh, he doesn't look like Rock Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> but he does sound like. <laughs> <That's> it. <laughs> Give me Martin Gable. <laughs> <laughs> One of the shows that uh, you did appear on was Grand Central Station. Do you remember? Yes. I'm trying to – Tony Roberts was the announcer on that, and uh, I'm trying to remember some of the other people. But it was every Saturday, and we'd rehearse on a Friday and then do the show on a Saturday. And, oh, goodness, there were so many uh, actors. Uh, who are, the fellow who was uh, Titus Moody on Fred Allen's uh, – yeah, Parker Sen- Fennelly. Parker yeah. Fennelly and Senator Claghorn's Tony Delmar. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a great life because you'd get there and you'd have your coffee and you'd uh, chew over the day's news and then you'd uh, read it, time it, and then set it and go on the air and read it. Yeah, Tony Delmar says, oh, television, oh, television. Oh, it was so good in the old days. <laughs> you just get up and read it because you had to memorize lines. You'd never heard of that. I think it's about time that uh, perhaps we turn the clock back and listen to an excerpt from Grand Central Station. What about it, Ed? Pillsbury Snow Sheen Cake Flour and Pillsbury Pancake Flour bring you Grand Central Station. its targets, shining rails in every part of our great country are aimed at Grand Central Station, part of the nation's greatest city. Drawn by the magnetic force of the fantastic metropolis, day and night, great trains rush toward the Hudson River, sweep down its eastern bank for 140 miles, flash briefly by the long red row of tenement houses south of 125th Street, dive with a roar into the two-and-one-half-mile tunnel which burrows beneath the glitter and swank of Park Avenue, and then Grand Central Station. Crossroads of a million private lives. Gigantic scenes on which are played a thousand dramas daily. A good love story is always tender and beautiful. But really, to warm the cockles of the heart, it should have at least a hint of the unbelievable. Like the sudden love of the shining prince for Cinderella, the little kitchen grudge. So this is the story of a charming, improbable love. And it begins on a starry evening as Mr. Barnaby J. Bridges, president of Bridges Incorporated, publishers of Better Books, suddenly returns to his office in the towering Grand Central Station building long after office hours to see if, by any chance, his missing keys are on his desk. Hmm. All the lights are on. The cleaning woman must be in there. Well... Well, I say, my good woman. Yes? Uh, can I help you? Yes. You <laughs> might tell me what you're doing on my genuine Chippendale chair, my authentic Louis XIV guest. Uh, typing on your hand tool platinum plated typewriter, Mr. Bridges. <laughs> Incidentally, this Chippendale and Louis XIV, 
very badly together. Oh, really? <laughs> Every time I've dusted this place, I've almost wanted to leave a note about it. Well, uh, why didn't you, Mrs... Uh... <laughs> Jensen. Kathy Jensen. Jensen. I believe in sticking my face out of other people's business, Mr. Bridges. And if you are one of those who, who enjoy mixing furniture, periods, <laughs> why shouldn't you? Uh, well, um, if you'll forgive me, I've got to finish my novel. You... You're writing a novel? Yes, and and it has to be finished in 90 days. That's when your annual prize contest closes, isn't it, Mr. Bridges? Well, so you're submitting a manuscript to Bridges Incorporated, eh, Mrs. Jensen? Uh-huh. Have you ever written anything before? No, but I've got a wonderful background. My daughter, Gloria, and I, we have been hopping all over the country for the past eight years. We have had lots of adventures. Oh, you're lucky, Mrs. Jensen. My sister Mildred has always watched over me, and all my life I've never done anything that wasn't thoroughly conventional. <laughs> Mine has been different. Once I was cook to 30 men on a Montana ranch. Then I kept a boarding house for two dozen oil dwellers in Oklahoma. Just before this, my daughter and I, we lived in a little coal mining camp, and I did the washing for every man there. <laughs> you certainly have got stuff to write about. <laughs> well, what's the subject of your novel? The ranch? Coal mine or Oklahoma? Oh, none of them. This is a story of a lonely girl. And I have set her adrift on the ocean. Oh, that's rather surprising. Why? I've always wanted to write about the ocean. So now but, I... But, uh, don't you need atmosphere? Of course. As a matter of fact, that's uh, one of the reasons I can't write at home. I... It bobs up and down so. It distracts me. What bobs up and down so? Uh, my home. Uh, it wasn't only atmosphere, of course. <laughs> the housing shortage helped. <laughs> Mrs. Jensen, um, are you making sense to you? Because you're not to me. <laughs> well, I think it's all very simple, Mr. Bridges. I'm trying to explain why I live in a barge on the East River. I don't believe it. Well, if you want to, you can take me home tonight. And see our boat for yourself. Now I remember Parker Finley was on one of those shows, and he used to ad lib. <laughs> uh, that uh, he was playing one of his characters, and we're there with our scripts. We know what we have to say because it's written down in front of us, and all of a sudden he depart from the script. And we, but he was always funny and always amusing. The big thing, another fellow, um, Howard Smith, uh, was a radio actor. I remember doing one of those shows, and. We're standing, we had, would have two mics because of the size of the cast, and he's standing, and it's his cue to speak, and I see him shuffling through his script, and there's this pause. So I took my script, and I shoved it in front of his face, and I pointed like that, and he went on. And so there were hazards involved with radio. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, there are hazards involved in, uh, in, in any medium, I suppose, in, uh, on the stage. It's worse on the in... stage, isn't it? No, <laughs> I the stage, so. uh, nobody else can ever you, and you've got to give a long speech, and if you get your lines, then what do you do, you know? <laughs> Should I tell you? Should I tell you? What <laughs> Opening night of the musical Nash at Nine. It's the closing song in the show, and it's a wrap-up of the show. And the orchestra plays, and I sing the first verse, and I think I'm doing fine. And then I think I hear something different, and I jump to the third, forgetting the second. And then I said a word that we always use when something happens, when some mechanical device goes wrong. I used that word, and I looked at the conductor, and I said, 
Let's take it from the top. <laughs> she went back to the top and I went on through. Well, you do something. If you're there by yourself on stage, you don't run off. You do something, something. Maybe God comes down and whispers the right line into your ear. Well, when you're doing a stage play, you, and you ever get the feeling that uh, you're in the middle of the second act and all of a sudden you, you, you feel you're not going to remember anything, you know, you're going to have a, be a complete blank and how are you going to get through? Do you ever have a feeling like that when oh, you're sure. doing it? Of course it happens. Uh, and then you just pause, you take a breath and you say, what am I here for? What am I supposed to do? Then you say, well, I'll say, it is a pleasant day outside, isn't it? And uh, she'll say, oh, you mean you're going upstairs now? And, and yes, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to go upstairs now and get that old wheel out of the chest of drawers and <laughs> get on with the play. So one actor will naturally come to the aid. He, 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 he or better. She <laughs> Otherwise the ship will sink. You better bail. <laughs> it's not a question so much of, of holding up the other actor as holding up your, the, yourself in the scene, I suppose. It's a matter of survival. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, doing a show of the stature of uh, Theater Guild on the air. These programs were uh, not simply uh, put together as easily as a Grand Central Station or perhaps a, an afternoon soap opera. They no, most were... often they were taken from common properties, uh, from novels, from plays, from movies. I don't recall an original script being done on Theater Guild on the air. I don't recall... Bob Anderson, whose most recent novel was, um, um, uh, what was it called? <laughs> uh, he's now a novelist, but he wrote Tea and Sympathy, and I Never Sang for My Father. He was one of the staff writers on the Theatre Guild on the Air, and S. Mark Smith was the story editor, and then Homer Fickett was the director, and then they had a whole editorial staff, and uh, they'd bring in writers, engage writers to adapt. Oh, so many of these uh, things... And uh, so they're more carefully done and researched, and we'd have a first reading, sit around and talk about it. Then we'd have another rehearsal, and then finally we'd put it on mic, and then we'd have another rehearsal. So it took really three days to do the show. It is the most rehearsed and carefully planned show on the air, I think. You had a full orchestra, did you? Full orchestra, of, uh, because it shifted networks. It was back and forth among the networks, but that orchestra was 30, at least 30 or 40, and Harold Levy, Hal Levy, would uh, compose all the bridges and the themes and conduct the orchestra while on the air. Norman Brokenshire was the announcer, and George Hicks was the spokesman for the sponsor. One it, wonders, you know, what the, uh, the budgets must have been like on a show like that. Enormous, uh, even by today's standards. Of course, mm. it costs more to film a show uh, when you're spending seven oh, days, yes. seven working days, and to say spend three working, three working days. But they'd, whenever a star was in the East, a movie star was in the East, or a stage star working in a play, they'd work around that, and uh, uh, so they always had a vast uh, supply of uh, high-class talent available. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then there were many, many working actors in New York City at the time, so they... And never said, well, who's going to play the part? They say, well, uh, at the moment, who's, what star is in town? We'll tailor the part for him or her. But uh, it was never done casually. But, uh, I, I was just thinking the, the, uh, the star would, would uh, determine perhaps the, uh, the bill of fare on that particular program. But then the workaday actors, the Larry Haynes, the Jackson Becks, and so on, they would, they would fill out the rest of the cast if, uh, if what we've learned uh, from talking with these people is, is correct. In other words, there, there was that uh, stable of actors and actresses yeah, who would... Radio Stock up. Company. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I remember that Claude Rains did Valley Forge. Uh, Marlena Dietrich uh, did uh, a, a movie where she played uh, one of those mysterious German ladies... 
And uh, so you would have to be ready to play a German or an Irishman or an Englishman with Charles Lawton. We did uh, old something or other. I forgot it's an old English play. So uh, I was being a, a Cockney butler or something like that. And then Larry Haynes would come in and be uh, an Italian fishmonger or something like that. That's, that's what it's the fun was. You played a variety of parts. Did you uh, do a lot of dialects in those days? Uh, yes, because that made you more employable. There's a fellow who's working uh, presently with the uh, uh, union after the American Federation Radio and Television Actors in Chicago. I knew him, Earl George. And uh, it was, you always wanted to get in there and audition and get the part. You know, you wanted to work. And he found out that he would make himself a specialist. And he had a, a briefcase. And I said, what is that, Earl? He said, yeah, I've got my dialects in here. You know that I've now got up to 47 dialects? And I said, what? In 47? <laughs> I didn't know there were that many languages in the world. He said, well, there's southern Italy, there's northern Italy, there's Bulgaria, there's Mesopotamia, there's Africa. And that he would, if he had never heard it, he would make it up. And he'd go in and they'd say, well, why don't you make this part a little more colorful? Let's say he comes from uh, Slovakia. We'll make him a Slovakian doctor instead of a, a Minnesota doctor. Oh, yes, that'll make it more attractive, more interesting, add color to the show. And he became a specialist in dialects, and that's uh, how he made it. Kenny Delmar, of course, is a specialist in uh, dialects, and when he was on the program, uh, I, I think we asked him, uh, well, how, how, do you, how do you get into a, a dialect? If you know so many, how, how do you just move into it? And he said, I, I would think in terms of a key word, like he said, if it were to be a Russian dialect, you know, you'd drive a new kajalak. <laughs> And he said, from there on, it, it would just kind of fall into place. Did yeah. that uh, work for you? Well, there was a, a business uh, firm called Linguaphone, and they had actual persons record a set text. And so if you wanted a Northumberland dialect, you'd go and you'd listen to that record reading the same text. Or if you wanted a Southern Texas or a Western Texas, you'd go and you'd hear actual people, and you'd study it that way. Well, that's something we never knew, Dick, uh, how you acquired these skills. That's very interesting. Obviously, they are skills. I want to get back to the Theater Guild of the Air, E.G., and we'll do that right after this. You're listening to The Golden Age of Radio with E.G. Marshall, brought to you by Cromwell Savings Bank and WTIC. Get growing, get growing. You can count the difference when you're growing. Cromwell Savings Bank of Cromwell. Spring is here and time for home improvements. And home improvement time is any time you see Cromwell Savings about a home improvement loan. Cromwell Savings Bank is one friend you can borrow from. So mend your fences, add a room, redecorate the downstairs, repair the roof, or whatever else your home needs with the helping hand of a home improvement loan from Cromwell Savings. Get growing now at Cromwell Savings Bank. You grow more with us. Cromwell Savings Bank of Cromwell. Cromwell Savings Bank, member of FDIC, an equal housing lender, is located at Main and West Streets in Cromwell. This is WTIC Hartford. Now back to your host, Dick Bertell. Now, we were talking about the Theater Guild. Was there an audience for that show? Yes, and it was a highly prized uh, ticket, too, that you could only get it by writing in, and people would uh, plan visits to New York when they would get the Theater Guild on the air tickets. Mm -hmm. That's when they'd go to New York to mm -hmm. sit there, because mm -hmm. it was quite glamorous to see Tallulah Bankhead and Burgess Meredith and, oh, heavens, all, all the big stars played on it. Were they ever in any way disruptive? When, when I say that, uh, I, I'm thinking of... Uh, 
Perhaps an audience finding a sound effects man amusing in his antics to create a sound pattern for an actor or an actress. Did this, this ever come through? Did well, once you? in a while, except the audience would always be warned. Norman Brokenshire would get out and say, and so forth, and welcome and warming him up, and then say, now the sound effects man at one point uh, will be doing something uh, with this horse race here. Now, uh, of course, the way he does it, he does it all by himself. Now, uh, some people might find that amusing. Let's uh, show him, Keen Crockett, show him what it's like. So the audience would see it beforehand and not laugh at it. And one time I was playing a Shakespearean actor on uh, doing something from Macbeth, and uh, so Norman told the audience that at one point I would go on down to a certain spot and I would be saying some lines from Macbeth, uh, overacting and being very hammy about it. But, of course, you mustn't laugh at that point, although it may be funny, because it's part of a show and we don't want it to intrude on the show. And the audiences were very obedient and very well-mannered. What you're doing, really, is telling the audience that you're a part of this image that you're creating for millions of people out there. You're, you're taking them into your confidence, and they're, in a sense, uh, a part of the act, would you, would you say? That's right, and that's what High Brown is saying now, is that the audience, one person, one individual, sitting alone in his room with his radio now is a part of that show, is part of that performance, because he, with his imagination, or she, with her imagination, builds the castle, makes the river, and flies the ocean, and so forth. You bring your imagination. You are a part of the performance in radio, but... Uh, and the other, some of the other mediums, you're sitting there staring at the screen, and uh, you don't have to provide anything except eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's about time we heard from uh, Theater Guild on the air, don't you? One of my favorite shows, and uh, I think when you hear the excerpt, you'll agree, it lives up to the advanced billing as far as production is concerned, Dick. The Theater Guild on the air. Tonight we bring you Sidney Howard and Paul DeGreif's stirring play, Yellow Jack, with an all-star cast, including Walter Abel, Luther Adler, Alan Baxter, Whitford Kane, Anthony Roth, James McCallion, and Anne Burr. And here is Lawrence Langner, co-director with Teresa Halbert of the Theatre Guild, to introduce the play. Mr. Langner. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This evening, we are bringing you a drama in which man fights against nature and wins. Our heroes in this play fight against a malignant villain, a villain far greater than any in the old melodramas. This villain is Yellow Fever, or Yellow Jack, as it was called, a killer which slew men and women by the millions. Our authors, Sidney Howard and Paul de Christ, have made it one of the most thrilling dramas that ever hit the Broadway stage. Playing the heroic and determined Dr. Walter Reed, for whom the Walter Reed Hospital in Washington is named, is the well-known stage and screen star, Walter Abel. Luther Adler plays Dr. Lazare, Alan Baxter plays Dr. Carroll, while Anne Burr plays Nurse Blake. And now the curtain rises on Yellow Jack. Goodbye, my bluebell. Farewell to you. One last fond look into your eyes, so blue. This is a story that begins in the year 1900, just after the Spanish-American War. William McKinley was president of the United States then... 
And the American people were just getting over the happy hysteria of what was considered a bang-up war. Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders were the heroes of the hour. And the phrase on everyone's lips was, Dewey did it. Dewey being the admiral who licked the Spaniards at Manila Bay. Yes, they were sitting pretty on the home front, telling each other we sure cleaned up the Spaniards in a hurry. But in faraway Cuba, the boys who did the cleaning up and then remained as an army of occupation, they didn't feel so happy about it. You see, an epidemic of yellow fever had just broken out among the troops. The scene is the base hospital at the United States Army Barracks at Camado, near Havana, Cuba. Where do you want them, Doctor? Over here. Bring that stretcher here. Is it yellow, Jack, Doc? Is this? Hey, you, soldier. Get somebody. Pick up a man in company B. Put them in ward H. Bring that stretcher here. That's right. Put him on the bed. Gently. What is it, Doc? Yellow Jack? Has he got yellow Jack? In case we've had since breakfast, five of them. Gently, I said. Doctor. Doctor, the ambulance is here. Two more cases. We'll take care of them. Good afternoon, Major Reed. Afternoon. Dr. Carroll arrived yet? No, sir. Hmm. Oh, Dr. Agramonte. Come into the laboratory with me. Well, what news? Did you expect anything, Major? I can't stand much more of this, Agramonte. Have you looked over the Army death list lately? Yes, Major. Look out this window. See those transports heading home? I don't dare think what they may be carrying. And we've taken Cuba on, taken it on with this awful thing raging in it. Raging and waiting for fresh American fuel now, Agramonte. Waiting its chance to jump over home to us, as it's been doing for over a hundred years, to Philadelphia, New Orleans, and... And to know we've had it under our microscopes a thousand times and never seen it. Carol. Hello, Chief. Hi, Agrimony. Any news from the camp at Pinar? No news, no leads, nothing. And it's not pernicious malaria. It's yellowjack and going great guns. They're dropping like flies. And our commission, you, Agramonte, and you, Carol, and Lazier, and I, we were sent down here to stop this horror, to isolate a microbe and find a cure. We're licked, Carol. I'm calling the commission to disband it tonight. Good. I hate wasting time. Got to have something I can see and get at. I uh, ran into one puzzler out there, though. I've heard enough puzzlers that I can't solve. This is a funny case. A soldier, sick July 12th, died on the 18th. I got your report on him. Hadn't been near the disease for over a month when he took sick. How was that? They had him locked up in the guardhouse. What's that? Are you sure of that, Carol? After he caught it, he lay in that guardhouse for three days with eight other prisoners. One of them even slept in his blankets after he died. None of them caught it. Oh. They were exposed to whatever he was exposed to, and they didn't catch it. Then when he caught it, they didn't even get it from him. Right, Chief. How about contaminated food or water? The whole guardhouse ate and drank the same. It's the most unusual case we've come across since... What's the matter, Chief? Nothing, nothing. That is, I'd like to think. Come along, Carol. I'll notify Lazier about the meeting, Major. Yeah, and I'll tell Major Gorgas and Colonel Torrey. Boy, it'll be good to go home and work on something useful after running up this blind alley. See you tonight, Chief. Hmm. Not through contact. Not contaminated food or water. Now, what was it that crawled or jumped or flew through that guardhouse window? Bit that one man, gave him Yellowjack, and then, without biting anyone else, went back where it came from. What was it? 
This is Dick Bertel, along with Ed Corcoran, and our guest tonight is E.G. Marshall. E.G., um, I do, I, I, we know we never talk about television on this program. It's a nasty word. <laughs> <laughs> but you, uh, although certainly I, I can't say that you were a pioneer because uh, uh, when the Defenders went on the air, television had been established for a, a, a good ten years. But I think you and the script and the production of that show gave a dignity to television that uh, was, was sorely needed, at least in the... In the, in the weekly series, The Defenders. How did you feel about it when, when you were offered the part? Well, uh, I thought of it as a job uh, with some people that I liked very much, Reggie Rose uh, and many of the directors who had uh, worked in television, live television. Uh, I was a pioneer in television, however. I was on the first dramatic show that was done on the network, and it was the NBC network, is Our Town, and uh, Fred Coe was the director. He was a pioneer in television. Raymond Massey. Oh, goodness, I'm trying to remember another. Dora Morandi. And uh, at that time, it was an open end because we couldn't time the shows as well. And mm-hmm. uh, if you'd go in between the time segment, for instance, we would go off the air at, uh, say, 1010. Uh, well, to fill up that five minutes, there'd be a standby pianist or someone like that there just to fill in the, the, the remaining five minutes. And uh, that went on for quite a while because uh, we didn't know how many sets there were. Well, we knew how many sets there were, but we didn't know how many listeners there were because nobody cared that much about television. <laughs> they were listening to their radios. That's right. <laughs> and then after a while... This was, what, 1946, 47, somewhere? Around in there, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the Theater Guild was doing uh, that program, and they did Catherine of Russia with Gertrude Lawrence, and uh, they did... Uh, quite a few shows, and that was long before the, the regular shows, that is to say the Studio Ones and so on. That Studio One was one of the first yeah, dramatic Playhouse shows. Playhouse 90 is another... I well, saw I came Catherine of Russia, incidentally. <laughs> I'm, I'm very oh. excited. I, yeah, I saw the oh. live production of that That's show. That's right. The George Matthews was in it, I remember, and then the, the, the fellow from... Um, the Gate Theater in Dublin. I'm trying to remember his name. I should know it because I... Wouldn't be Fitzgerald, would it? No, like no, it was at the Gate. He was at, at the Abbey. Anyway, so that the, there was uh, the early television, the time when radio was number one. I remember looking at Variety, the trade paper, and at the headline above the, um, the name, the banner would be saying, Films, Radio, Music, Vaudeville, Stage, Television. Now you look and you see what's up. The first one is television films, and then where's radio way down at the end? That's right. Oh, temporary omoris. All right, back to the Defenders. Yeah. Uh, well, I looked down at them because I wanted to stay in New York. I didn't want to ever go to California again, and we were going to do the show in the East. It's lovely. And uh, so, well, I, we hope it uh, lasts for a year or two. And it caught on, as they say, like dynamite from the very beginning. And it was uh, the show that received more awards than any other show for writing and for production, one thing or another. The only show ever to receive a silver gavel from the American Bar Association. And I traveled around the country as a lawyer talking to uh, civic groups and legal groups. And I met so many judges, many fine, you know, people on the Supreme Court and and appellates and so forth around the country. And uh, we were very proud of the show. And it ran four years, and that's uh, about as long as it should have run. And uh, when people say, is it ever coming back again? Uh, I don't know. We couldn't get it together again. We couldn't get all those writers. Reggie Rose is living in London now, and he likes it very much there. And the directors, Franklin uh, Schaffner and so forth, and Buzz Kulik and all those people, you couldn't get these directors back now because they're doing features. And the writers just... uh, wouldn't be available. You'd have to find a whole new gang. It, 
it was a cut above at the time. I, I, this was my reaction. I saw the first show and I said, wait, wait a minute, this, this is something that I've never seen before. And uh, was that your reaction? Well, I knew it was going to be better than the general run of the mill because the writers were better. Mm-hmm. We, had the, we had the best writers that were writing for television. Then I said, well, it's, it's got to be better. Whether it's going to be good or not, that's something else again. Mm-hmm. But we had the best directors and the best actors and the best writers, and uh, we cared a lot about it. And it wasn't just another job. And uh, we weren't trying to shake the world with it, and uh, we were doing some adult themes. Now that, you, that uh, one time we did a show on abortion, and uh, many of the sponsors refused to carry it, and a, uh, a jewelry manufacturer carried it for the uh, the Easter show, and uh, it was an adult theme, and we think we handled it tastefully. Nowadays, it's uh, you know anyone does an abortion show, and Even no the soap one cares. Opera, <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and we did show about a homosexual, and uh, but generally it was. What is this legal system all about? How does it work? How does it affect the average man? Is it uh, helping him, or is it only work for the big man? Do you have to have a, a high-priced uh, liar or lawyer to, <laughs> if you're brought before the bar of justice? Well, no, it's equal justice under laws. It's very simple, naive, plain as that. It's equal justice. Make justice more just and equality more equal. That's what America is about. We thought, and it says, that's it. Maybe we sound like Pollyanna's or something like that. Maybe we're simplistic about it all. But that's how we look at the system. We think that's what the average American person would like to see it be. Well, yeah, for the first time, though, I think we had the Perry Masons and people like that. Never lost a case. I think you were more believable. Yeah. You, did, you lost a few, and uh, you were human. You just you weren't something on a pedestal like they well, try to make Well, we say there is a vast gray area in the law that w- what is the crime? What is the crime actually when a, uh, an individual is uh, arrested for a crime? What is that crime, and what should the punishment be? Should the punishment fit the crime? Is there a punishment fit the criminal? What is the what actually happened? Now, how are you going to deal with this individual, not with a, a class of crime, but with an individual? And I think that's why we were respected by gangsters and policemen and Supreme Court judges, because uh, we tried to do the thing as it actually is in practice or ought to be in practice. E.G., do you have a favorite medium in which you like to work? Well, when it comes down to that, all things being equal, I always say the stage, mm-hmm. but all things are not equal. They're not uh, the, the money isn't always there, the script isn't always there, the time isn't always there. So I, I work in any medium, and I'm happiest when, in any medium, I'm doing some material that I especially like. And sometimes it has happened to be television, sometimes films, sometimes radio, and sometimes stage. I'm planning now and trying to get a production going on Broadway of a play, a new play. I like that very much. If it can happen, if it doesn't happen, I still have radio and then there's always (laughs) television and there's always films. E.G., very often we ask our guests if if, if you had one show or or one situation that you'd like to hear again from uh, radio's past, what might it be? Drama, comedy, and specifically what situation? Jack Benny going into a dentist's office and getting uh, the gas uh, to going under anesthesia and the dentist turning out to be Fred Allen. I understand that although we as listeners thought we were listening to Jack Benny and Fred Allen on the same show, very often we were deceived. Well, now, I'm not quite sure because I knew this actor. His name was Everett Elmer, and he was a radio actor, and I was also with him on the stage. He could imitate almost exactly Fred Allen's voice and Jack Benny's voice. 
and sometimes he would go on Jack Benny's program and <laughs> pretend to be Fred Allen and vice versa. And he had quite a career out of it because that was one of the, the big things, uh, the feud between Jack Benny and Fred Allen, mm-hmm. the feud between Ben Burney and Walter Winchell. Those are the things that we uh, the added spice to the thing. I hope you can find that one. But any show that Jack Benny and one, I would listen to again uh, and, and again. Okay. Turn it on, Ed, will right. you? The Great Nuts Flakes program coming to you from Toronto, Ontario and starring Jack Benny. With Mary Livingston, Dennis Day, Rochester, yours truly, Don Wilson, and our guest conductor, Alan McIver, and his all-Canadian orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time in our broadcasting history, our program this evening originates outside the borders of the United States. Yes, sir, we're in Toronto, Canada. Canada, stretching 3,000 miles from Nova Scotia in the east to Vancouver Island in the distant Pacific. It's big, all right. Canada, famous for its farming, its lumbering, its mining, and its fur trapping. Yep, everything from grizzly bear to skunk. (laughs) Which brings us to our master of ceremonies... Mm, And I had to help him out on that. Oh, hello again. This is Jack Benny, the grizzly bear, talking. (laughs) I've got too much hair tonic on me to be that other animal, you know. (laughs) And Don, there's a sure thrill broadcasting from the Dominion of Canada. Look at those uniforms out in the audience. Men from the Royal Canadian Navy, the Canadian Active Army, the Royal Canadian Air Force. Well. And don't forget the Royal Norwegian Air Force. Yes, sir, they've all... They've all... They've all turned out. And I love the people up here in Toronto, Don. They're so friendly, and they go out of their way to make you comfortable. Uh, what do you mean? Well, for instance, when I arrived in town, it was snowing. So they dug an underground tunnel from the Union Station to the Royal York Hotel just for me. Now, that's that's real consideration. Oh, now, wait a minute, Jack. That tunnel connecting the Union Station and the Royal York Hotel has been there for years. It has? (laughs) Gee. Of course, everybody knows that. Oh, my God. Goodness, then, then I better rush over there right away. What's the matter, Jack? Oh, I, I've got to take down that sign I put up. What sign? Jack Benny Tunnel, admission 10 cents. <laughs> well, that's very nice of you. Go ahead and sing that. It's always great to hear Jack Benny. Back to our guest, E.G. Marshall, right after this word from our sponsor. Get growing, get growing. You can count the difference when you're growing. Cromwell Savings Bank of Cromwell. Perhaps this is the year you've decided to improve your home's exterior appearance. New plantings for the front yard, a new driveway, or that backyard patio you've always desired. Well, these two can be yours with a home improvement loan from the folks at Cromwell Savings Bank. Springtime is action time, so visit them soon. 
They're open Monday through Wednesday, 9 to 3, Thursdays, 9 to 5, and Fridays, 9 till 7.30 p.m. You'll grow more with us. Cromwell Savings Bank of Cromwell. Cromwell Savings Bank, member of FDIC and equal housing lender, is located at Main and West Streets in Cromwell. E.G., why, uh... Why do you think that radio has come back uh, today, 1974? Why, why not uh, ten years from now? Why not five years ago? Do you, is there any specific reason? Was it just somebody's idea? Was it High Brown's idea now? High Brown has always had the idea. High Brown was always sorry to see uh, television take over. And um, when was the proper time for it? Now, the proper time is now because it's being done. So I'm I'm happy that it is being done now. I don't know what... A situation exists today for it that did not exist five years ago. I don't know, maybe sociologists can figure those things out when they're making these study of ethnographic uh, populations and so forth. But uh, I don't think the storytelling thing has ever left us. Uh, every time uh, you uh, take your child to bed or you uh, go someplace, I'm going to say, read us a story, read us a story. Uh, we have a group in New York, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, Kevin McCarthy, Ruby Nasi Davis, Maria Tucci, Nicola Tucci, a bunch of people who are writers. Anna Moore is a poetess, and uh, David Amram, a composer. And uh, we said, let's just do a show. What will we do? What do you got? What do you like? And we got the basement of a church, and we put a sign up in front of the church, tonight at 8 o'clock, the wide embrace. And they were lined up around the block, and the police say they turned 1,500 people away. Now, it was just our names, and they say, it's the wide embrace. And we started the show. We rang a little bell and said, here's the show begins. Uh, you got something there you'd like to read? And someone said, yes, Yeats. I'd like to read this poem by Yeats. And Honor Moore said, well, I have this poem about uh, my mother's mustache. And so she read this humorous poem. And then someone sang a song. Virginia Vestoff sang a beautiful song. And uh, we just did a potpourri of things like that. And I read a little something from O'Casey. Someone read something from Shakespeare. People sat there, and their eyes were shining. They were just listening. They weren't watching dancers or orchestras or battles going on. They'd like to hear a story, and I think that is part of our heritage, part of our culture, listening to a story from daddy or mommy or from the teacher, from the preacher. Who was it was telling me that part of his military education was the last day of school. It was the instructor's or professor's option, and he could then, of course, defer to the students. What would you like? Would you like to take off now? Or would you like to sit around here and talk? Or would you like to hear me read something? Read something! He said, all right. So he'd get out a book and he'd read from a novel or something like that. And that became a tradition there that, you no, know, on the last day, we're not going to run away. <laughs> read us a story, teacher. I had, uh, I had a delightful experience this past Christmas <clears throat> in reading The Christmas Carol to the family. And it started out with that horrendous ice storm <laughs> where there was, there was, there was radio. We, we had uh, three batteries operating in a four-battery radio and a dead one to carry the current through. So <laughs> the distortion was horrible. But we were able to get radio broadcasts and uh, the CBS Mystery Theater wasn't on the air at that time. But uh, th th there was no entertainment. The phonograph didn't work. Nothing worked. So I, I read... And the thrilling part was that no one asked me to stop. They asked me, please continue. That's lovely. And uh, I think that radio is the ultimate development of storytelling. 
Yes, and Charles Lawton uh, uh, used to do a lecture circuit. That's all he did was just read, nothing else, no makeup, no no scripts. Just open up the Bible or uh, Dickens or Twain and read. And uh, he had overflow audiences all the time. So, uh, and it's something you don't need to see the person either, because he used to do it on radio too. And whether you left your eyes open, whether you went on eating dinner, whether you went on uh, sewing or knitting or working around, you could listen. You could be painting your room, you could be repairing something like that, and you could listen to that story. Maybe sometimes you'd stop a little and listen a little more intently, but just the voice coming through that box was all that was needed. E.G. Marshall, I want to thank you very much for being our guest on the Golden Age of Radio, and thank you, too, for bringing radio back. Yeah, we certainly appreciate it. We've been trying ourselves, but you're the one that made it happen. No, I think it's <laughs> High Brown and the, the network who've done that. I'm just going along for the pleasure ride. <laughs> Until next time, this is Dick Bertell. Uh, Ed Corcoran. Good night. You've been listening to another of the old-time radio series, Golden Old-Time Radio Memories for You, from RadioThen.network.